Welcome, everyone, to Coffee and Poets. My name is Dr. Andy Jones, and I'll be your guest host this afternoon. We at Coffee and Poets meet here every third Sunday at the Naked Lounge, 111 H Street in Sacramento. This program is produced by NSA. You can listen to past episodes at coffeeandpoets.com. My guest this afternoon is the brand new poet laureate of the city of Sacramento, as well as the county of Sacramento. His name is Indigo Moore. Indigo Moore is a poet, a playwright, and the author of a number of books of poetry, including Through the Stonecutter's Window, which won the Northwest University Press's Cave Canem Prize. His first book, Taproot, was published as part of the Main Street Rags Editor's Select Poetry Series. Three of Indigo Moore's short plays, Harvest, Shuffling, and the Red and Yellow Quartet, debuted at the 60 Million Plus Theater's Spring Playwrights Festival, and his stage play, Live at the Excelsior, was a finalist for the Images Theater Playwright Award and is being made into a full-length film. Indigo Moore is a graduate of the Stone Coast MFA program, where he studied poetry, fiction, and script writing. He's also a graduate member of the Artist Residency Institute for Teaching Arts and former vice president of the Sacramento Poetry Center. He's won a number of prizes, been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and has been a finalist for the T.S. Eliot Prize, the Crab Orchard First Book Prize, and many others. He lives here in the Sacramento Valley, teaches and workshops throughout the Bay Area, but right now he's joining us this afternoon at the Naked Lounge. Indigo Moore, welcome. It's good to be here, Andy. Good to have you here, and congratulations on your new honor as the Poet Laureate of Sacramento. Thank you very much. It is an honor. I'm looking forward to it. Now, no doubt when you uh, applied to be, when you were invited to uh, apply to be the Poet Laureate of Sacramento, you had to think about the uh, the duties and the responsibilities of being a Poet Laureate, not only of uh, one of California's most important cities, but of its home county. And I'm yes. wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are some of the uh, set responsibilities that you have, and then what are some of the other uh, plans that you've made? The set responsibilities are uh, surprising, surprisingly uh, not as set as you might think. I believe that one of the uh, attributes they look for in a poet laureate is someone who will take the values of the Sacramento Municipal Arts Commission and carry them forward. I'm, I'm expected to promote poetry. I'm expected to uh, encourage as many people as possible within the area to not only take part in, but to in part in actually doing, but enjoying poetry. I'm expected to uh, be an ambassador for Sacramento and the Sacramento County. Now, I found in my work as Poet Laureate of the City of Davis that uh, often that means to be uh, an opportunity to perform between um, or before mixed audiences but often especially for children as well. And yeah. I'm wondering if you've already started thinking about which of the poems that you've written over the last couple of decades are uh, appropriate for kids, both with regard to content <laughs> and then uh, approachability. Yes, I have. But as much as anything else, I've thought about the people that I know who are poets in, in Sacramento and beyond, whose poetry fits those demographics. I believe that speaking with past laureates, that one of the things that they wish they had done was not try to do so much themselves. Right. And I look at myself as sort of a bridge between a lot of different uh, cultures, a lot of different uh, ethnicities, and also uh, when you look at walks of life, especially when you talk about jobs. I've done a lot in my lifetime, and I feel that I not only represent, but I make a good liaison between myself and people who are not particularly the artists. I've been an engineer for over 20 years now, and I'm looking forward to presenting uh, as many people, as many poets, getting them a chance to go into different places where they might not ordinarily go. That's actually one of the main reasons I wanted to become poet lawyer. I see. So to uh, introduce poetry to people who would not normally be receptive to it or not normally be in a place where poetry would be presented or performed. Precisely. Too many people outside of the arts believe that the arts are for a select few instead of thinking it as something 
that not only represents their lives, but something that they can use to represent their lives. And I want to give them an opportunity to see that that may not be true. Now, in terms of your work as a multi-decade engineer, I'm wondering, which of these do you feel is your secret identity? Is it your work <laughs> as an engineer where you go in, you know, and you, you punch the clock and, mm -hmm. and people say hello to you, maybe using a name that we're not all familiar with? Or Some of you are familiar with that. Or is the secret identity, uh, so is that your secret identity, or is the secret identity that of a poet? where your poetry friends might not know what you do during the day and vice versa. And you like to keep it separate. It's turning know, I, into an expose. <laughs> I have often said that in the daytime, I'm cleverly disguised as an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> All right, good. Well, we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that. And, and you mentioned uh, appealing to a wide variety of um, interests. Uh, different sorts of audiences. Mm -hmm. I came across a, a quotation by Martin Luther King, whose birthday it is today, that I thought I would bring up because of what he says about creativity. He says, as my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways in which I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. So I'm wondering in terms of the decisions that you made as a, a younger man, how was it that uh, you chose poetry or that poetry chose you and have brought you down this, this path of uh, accomplishment and creativity? I often wonder if any of us can go, can look back and say, well, this is the point where it turned. I, I believe I've always been an artist, or at least someone seeking to be an artist. I believe that... Many of us creative people live in our heads a lot, uh -huh. perhaps maybe a little more than other people do. And we're looking for ways to that, for that to come out, for what we have to say. And often we turn to the arts. It becomes a way to express things that maybe inside of our heads we understand, but trying to get them across to others when we're just speaking with them doesn't work. So we turn to another medium. I think... It's always been the case. Even when I was reading other people's works, I was looking for something that I identified with. And when you find the things that you identify with, you at some point try to mimic them and get it exactly the way that you see it. So if, if I had to pinpoint a time, I would say it was as far back as grade school. Right. Uh, but if I had to pinpoint a time where I became serious about it, that's easy. That's 1999 when I decided that I was going to actually dedicate a significant portion of my life to the arts. Now, uh, when you were a youth, you must have had some some mentors or were there people who you saw had chosen a, a path forward with the arts and you thought, oh, that's something that I might emulate someday? Or is it just a, a constant part of who you were all the time? Maybe you weren't thinking about professional goals back then. I think growing up in the South, uh, especially growing up in you know not a wealthy, wealthy community, that one of the things you lack is... Uh, mentors or role models. Mm -hmm. There was no one I knew that had gotten out of the neighborhoods I was in by becoming an artist. They had some type of trade or they were going to college in an attempt to become something different. I was the editor of the Pegasus Literary Magazine at West Mecklenburg High School in Charlotte, North Carolina. I did most of the artwork. I wrote poetry. I paired artwork with poetry. I wrote short stories in it. And never did it occur to me <laughs> to think of becoming something, you know, in the creative fields. And no one encouraged that also. The right. guidance counselors knew what my background was, but I had dis decent grades in maths and sciences, so there I was uh, become an engineer, become a uh, draftsman, do something that they could see as making money. And you've, uh, and, and it's interesting the sort of encouragement you got, and in a lot of ways it's paid off for you because you've been able to perhaps take some of the discipline that you built through uh, your achievement in uh, math and engineering and also uh, professionally in your workaday world. Yes. And I'm sure you, you applied that 
on nights and weekends and, and <laughs> during vacation time to exploration of the, the world of uh, poetry. So could you say something about the sort of lessons you learned from the unexpected places, whether it's on the job or from math and science courses? Absolutely. But I think it runs a little deeper than that. Uh -huh. I think there's certain personality traits that lend themselves to, say, engineering. Uh, if you look in the Bay Area, it's considered, well, it's not considered to, it has the highest concentration of artistic people in the world. And people think, well, well maybe that's because there's something in the water, and I don't think that's the case. I believe that our engineers, for the most part, all have some level of autism. The ability to concentrate on uh, such seemingly uh, minuscule tasks for long periods of time can make you a great engineer, but I think it can also make you a great writer because you're concentrating so much on a single word, a single line, a single phrase. And even when it's not exactly the way you want, you may move on, but you're going to come back to it. It's like on those old TI calculators where that yeah. last digit would never resolve and you want to make that resolve. You're always trying to. And I think the traits are very similar. I like that. Salman Rushdie once said, I think inspiration is nonsense, actually. I do think it's to do with concentration, not inspiration. And so there's a, um, a resonance there with what you just said, yes. the ability really to uh, focus. Uh, and, and of course, to focus on the minute is uh, an important talent for a poet, yes. working not only with, uh, with words, but with uh, sounds, with just a little bit of a, a half rhyme yes, and the knowledge yes. that a poem is not quite there yet. It needs some <laughs> more work. How often has it been when you, the last time you edit a poem is when you're reading it before in front of a crowd and you yeah. realize then this line doesn't scan the way you really wanted it to, even though you thought it did before you read it. Or you're thinking to yourself, I used this word in line five. I just used it in line two. <laughs> Again, Who am I yes. trying to fool here? This isn't yes. ready. <laughs> well, um, interesting. I think one thing that I've noticed in your poetry, and I think listeners will want to hear a, a sample soon, is that in listening to it, I can actually hear the incredible amount of revision work that you've done because there's not a lot of flab in your poetry, right? Thank you. That there have been so many things that I can just sense as a longtime poet myself that you have pulled out, you know, that there, there are lines there and that there are, they're almost sculpted because of all the thing, all the ways that you have said, well, finally, this is ready. <laughs> and that's highly admirable. You and I have both taught a lot of uh, younger poets. And I think this is one of the most important lessons. I believe so. You yes. haven't pulled enough out of this poem yet. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's hear uh, a poem. I don't know if we're doing this chronologically, but you've got uh, one of your many notebooks open representing, I'm sure, two of your published books and then uh, some of the manuscripts that you're working on. What would you like to share with listeners this afternoon? I'm going to be reading a poem from a uh, my current manuscript entitled In the Room of Thirsts and Hungers. The first poem I'm going to read is A Bullfight, a Revolution, and a Langston. Uh, in, in 1937, both Langston Hughes and Ernest Hemingway were Karis correspondents to the Spanish Civil War. And it's known that they were friends, and it's rumored that they went to bullfights together. They both loved bullfights and wrote about them. And so I wanted to get, a, get an idea in my head, or at least get it on paper, of what I thought a conversation like that would be. A bullfight, a revolution, and a Langston. Fondling a gin flask, Hemingway quips, we should live in the ring, not die on our butts in the stands. The matador executes Veronica, wiping the brow of a two-ton Christ. Today, there are no nationalists, no loyalists, only Spaniards. Ernest believes the Negro will have his day, that all locked doors shatter their frames when kicked open. Three barbed flags dive like swimmers into the bull. All poetry should be that direct, merciless to marrow. Tercia de muerte. The beast sways, a cattail in a zephyr. I wonder if he can taste his ancestor's screams in the air. 
We could hollow his horns and trumpet two civil wars. America to Spain, his sacrifice uniting our struggles. There's a devil in the matador's patience. Sword and muleta, the cape red not for the bull, but to hide the blood. Every revolution needs a martyr. Mules pull the carcass around the ring like Hector at Troy. Ernest says muleta and mulatto were meant to sound alike, that both carry a man's hard choices locked in skin. Wonderful. I like it, and I'm glad you've brought up uh, revolution as we approach January 20th. <laughs> Whatever do you mean? <laughs> there was uh, another uh, Langston Hughes poem that you may know, which begins, Good morning, revolution. It sounds like yes. this. Good morning, revolution. You're the very best friend I ever had. We're going to pal around together from now on. <laughs> and it continues from there. But uh, th that's wonderful. And, and this is something that um, I've heard you do with uh, other poems where yes. you will take, you know, we all get to choose our uh, pantheon of, of heroes. So it, it might be uh, Ernest Hemingway. It might be uh, Robeson. And you can uh, say, well, what will I have this man say? How can I recapture him? How can I repurpose him? For how can I reintroduce him to new audiences who uh, might not know who Charles Robeson is, and uh, and and have these characters uh, talk to one another? Yes, and and it's probably a, a skill that um, you've worked on as well in writing plays and screenplays, where you can say uh, that there's more I can do with conversation than I can with interiority here. So let's go for it. Yeah, I, I believe in that greatly, and. Um you had uh, given a Salman Rushdie uh, quote. Uh -huh. I don't think it's, I, I do believe inspiration is, yeah. is important. I believe that uh, the input that we take in gives us more opportunities to consider what if. I was having a, a, a conversation today with uh, Kelly Stewart, who's a wonderful writer in the Bay Area. And we were talking about times that we have misunderstood what someone said. And then it leads to thinking of something else. And the next thing you know, you have a poem, you have a story, you have the beginnings of something. Right. And, and yeah, I believe that, at least for me, it's all uh, like a collage that I may read uh, some factual events or something, uh, read something of someone else, or make a mistake. Within the Room of Thirst and Hungers, I was reading what I thought was a character study of uh, Othello. And it turned out to be a character study of Paul Robeson. Right, right. And it made me realize how similar their characters were and how similar their lives were, the times that they lived in, their downfalls. And I started thinking, you know, if Paul Robeson, all the times he had played Othello on stage, had actually listened to some of the things that were happening to Othello, then maybe he wouldn't have made some of the mistakes and some of the things he did were mistakes. Uh, you know, others may think of it as different, but basically I think telling the McCarthy uh, committee exactly what he wanted to tell them and exactly the way he told them, maybe it could have been done a little bit better. Right. Uh, obviously he was a hero in that respect, but I think we could have used him a little longer. Absolutely. It's uh, an American hero who, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. because he wanted to do, he wanted to represent Othello interacting with, maybe smooching with, maybe strangling Desdemona, <laughs> that that is not something that uh, would they be welcome to say doing, in, yes. in the United States in the 1930s. <laughs> so he had to go off to Europe to represent yes. those stories. Yes. And I, and I was looking at that and that's how this manuscript came about. Paul Robeson learning a little from Othello or and not learning from them, seeing and putting side by side their lives and everything they went through and looking at them being mirrored in that way. Right. Indigo Moore is my guest this afternoon. Thanks very much for joining us uh, today at Coffee and Poets at the Naked Lounge. Quick reminder, we're here every third Sunday at 11th and H Street at the Naked Lounge. With regard to this idea of inspiration, I think some people think of inspiration as something that you wait for and you can't <laughs> write until it arrives. And I think what you're talking about is kind of heightened receptivity as well, 
right? Yes. That it was Henry James who said, a novelist or a writer must be someone on whom nothing is lost, right? So you're going out there and you're, you're uh, putting it in your notebook, you're paying close attention, and it's going to come up in that collage of a poem later on in, in unexpected ways. Absolutely. But I, I bet with your uh, rigor and discipline as an engineer, you probably don't spend a lot of time sitting around you know, at your keyboard or with pen and pad in hand, waiting for inspiration to strike. <laughs> I bet you get right to work anyway. But I, I don't do. know. Let me hear. I do. I absolutely. I will write myself into inspiration. There's been points where I had an idea that I wanted to represent something in poetry and it wasn't coming. I will pick up other books and start reading for a little bit, but I'm not leaving the keyboard. I'm going to write something and sooner or later it will come. I believe right. that, but it's, but I've been doing this so long that I trust my process. I believe that the fear is one of the things that when you're becoming a uh, more seasoned writer, it's one of the first things and one of the best things you can lose. Right. Because you're writing, writing, and saying, oh, when you're younger, you're writing and thinking, oh, this is not coming. Oh, I had a thought. I lost it. I don't care. I'm going to keep writing. If that doesn't come back around, something else will. Uh, I can't remember who said the quote, but... They said, uh, I don't wait for inspiration. I hunt it down with a stick. Right. And I believe in that. That I think it's with a club. And with I the club, yes. Uh, let, let me find that because I've got that right here. <laughs> so you like me. I wouldn't yeah. be able to yeah. rest until I looked it up. <laughs> All right. Jack London yes, said, yes. don't loaf and invite inspiration. Light after it with a club. <laughs> and if you don't get it, you will nonetheless get something that looks remarkably like it. Love it. Yeah. That's exactly the way I feel. There's no shortage of ideas. If one leaves, another will come along. It's like a bus. The next one's coming soon. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned about uh, the, the books that have inspired you. You've talked about your first book, Taproot, as a gateway book. Yes. And that may be an idea that's unfamiliar to some people. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what you did with Taproot and how it's a gateway book for you? A Taproot, I call it a gateway, gateway book because I believe that when you're first writing, a lot of your poems have to do with a very similar topic, even if it's something that you don't recognize immediately, but it's the poems you have to write. Right. The poems that you feel have to come out before other things will. Uh, for me, it was about my brother. He died of AIDS, and at the time, we hadn't really spoken to each other in years. And Taproot was my attempt to try to understand how two brothers growing up in the same house in the South could become so estranged. Interesting. Well, it was um, Martin Luther King, whose birthday we're celebrating today, said, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, that tension comes up in Taproot. And and like you say, it, it um, returns in a number of your poems. And that is yes. uh, poems about brothers, about relationships, about the family. Uh, about the the um, the journey back home to the south and what that means and and uh, you know what sort of like personal history that is as well as the the nation's history and and so forth. Yes, it comes up in so many ways, even at times when it doesn't seem it is. Uh, I've been working on a novel, and uh, in it, the two two of the principal characters are a uh, man who was, as a young boy, had a best friend who was a slave. And he owned the, he owned the other boy, this, the, the, the Negro. But they were basically brothers. So even once, you know, I'm getting away from it, they're estranged as men. Still, what's driving the novel is the fact that these two quote unquote brothers and their relationship, even when you're moving away from it, it's still there. It's always there. Absolutely. Well, that sounds fascinating. I, mm -hmm. I look forward to uh, reading that. Mm -hmm. the, one um, can recall, say, the relationship between Huck Finn and Jim. You know, there's no closer bond in that uh, novel, mm -hmm. but they too are on different paths because of, uh, you know, historical yes, designations yes. outside of their control. So we've talked about Taproot, and I'm sure that you needed that gateway book 
in order to write Through the Stonecutter's Window, which won the very prestigious Northwestern University Press's uh, Kave Kanem Prize. And uh, not all listeners may know uh, what that prize is. Could you say a little bit about it and about your book Through the Stonecutter's Window? Absolutely. Kave Kanem uh, is an organization uh, founded by Tor Derricotte and Canaeus Eady, and it promotes the uh, the work of African-American poets. It, it's not uh, intrinsic, intrinsically uh, xenophobic in, it, in any way. It encourages African-Americans to write basically about anything they want to. Uh, people like myself were at the time who felt that I was expected to write about certain things, expected to talk about these things or, or speak in certain ways. Got a chance to be around people who were writing poems in German, who were writing poems about opera, writing whatever they wanted to. And it was a very freeing experience. Through the Stonecutter's window, there are poems in there about opera, poems in there about lynching, poems in there about an artist model. And it gave me an opportunity to express the range that I wanted to have, which is everything. Excellent. Well, let's take a, uh, a poetry break from all of this chit-chat as, who was it? Louis Armstrong said at one point, less tuning, more crooning. <laughs> so let's, let's hear a poem. Do you uh, have one in front of you that you could share with listeners? I do. I'm going to share another from In the Room of Thirst and Hungers. And this poem is, it, it's, it appeared recently in Brilliant Corners, which is a wonderful journal that deals specifically with uh, poems and stories and essays about jazz. And this particular poem is about Jimmy Lunsford. Now, Jimmy Lunsford was a wonderful, wonderful uh, jazz saxophonist, and he's known as much for his his own playing as for his band, which really swung. Mm -hmm. And how he fits into this manuscript is that he was also known for something else in that W.B. Du Bois did not consider Jimmy good enough for his daughter and basically would not let Jimmy Lunsford marry her. Freeze frame, Jimmy Lunsford. In 48 hours, he'll headline a slab in the morgue. But tonight, Jimmy's band is hot. The highs high, the lows scrape dust off the McElroy ballroom floor. On this man, 45 looks 60. Still, he fans his sacks and the room blurs silent. It's true, when he caught wind of the divorce, that Yolanda discovered what all Harlem knew, that County Cullen packed more sugar in his heels than a Louisiana cane field, Jimmy laughed his ass off. But that was years ago. Tonight, not good enough for Daddy Du Bois has no place on this stage cause Jimmy's band is hot. He stumbles. Gravity troubles his wingtips spotlight to spotlight. Ankles swollen, stuffed deep in fine thread socks. He's no bird, never been. A couple notes spew flat, wander the crown, grunder the crowd, begging for change. It's clear he's gut shot, his sheath music pinned on silk, lining a pine box. Clamped to his leg, a coronary howling, you can die here a seaside, Jimmy, here a seaside. He'll flash cool in a tux, even dead. A cemetery may not be the cotton club, but hey, a gig's a gig's a gig, and hot is hot, and let me tell you, Jimmy's band. Great. Tell us the title of that one again. Freeze Frame. It must be uh, interesting, as we were talking about before, to bring up the names of people who were uh, prominent, mostly Americans, mostly in the 20th century. Yeah. And uh, to like, I'm a jazz fan, but I don't know so much about Jimmy Lunsford, mm -hmm. but to uh, dangerous, I might say. <laughs> yeah. You mean he, he was dangerous? No, it's dangerous to do that because you run the risk of people saying, well, I have no idea who that is. You have right. to make the poem stand on its own without the backstory enough to encourage them to look it up or to just take the poem at face value. Absolutely. This idea of the, the gig 
and uh, highlighting the, the slab and the morgue and the, the cemetery. It's got a, a, a macabre uh, quality to it, but it also suggests the uh, the burning the candles at, uh, at both ends. Did yes. you say he died at 45 years old? Yes. So do you think Du Bois made the right choice then? That uh, <laughs> may, maybe he could tell Jimmy Lunsford had the, the high blood pressure. Well, and, it's know. difficult to tell. I mean, we all know that County Cullen was perhaps not the right choice right. for his daughter, considering that County Cullen was gay. But uh, W.B. Du Bois wanted his daughter to marry a certain person. He believed in a talented tip. Yeah. There was, you know, the 10% of African-Americans were what we're going to be the cream of the crop, and he was not going to settle for a jazz musician marrying his daughter. So he made the right choice for him. I don't know if it's up to any of us to say if he made the right choice for everyone else. Indigo Moore is my guest this afternoon, and we're chatting about uh, poetry and 20th century American heroes. Um, so right now it's the 15th. We've been talking about how it's uh, Martin Luther King's birthday. This coming, that means this coming Friday, is January 20th, and it's a day that many of us have been dreading uh, since the, the first week of uh, November. But I understand that on that very uh, night, you're participating in an event representing uh, poetry. I think there'll also be uh, an ecological writer there and a, a novelist. And is this up in Yuba County? Is that what I remember reading? Yes, yes, Yuba Lit is the name of the reading. So uh, Yuba Lit, and I'm sure that there'll be an expectation for you to uh, respond to this new era that we're going to be living in as of the, yes. the 20th. And I'm wondering, um, some political topics have come up in your poetry thus far, mostly in a historical rather than a, a present context. I'm wondering what sort of responsibilities you feel that you have as a, uh, a poet to bring up political topics, and then also to what extent do your own political beliefs, whatever they might be, is it important for you as a poet to manifest them in your poetry? I believe it's important for me to get across uh, my views on humanity and acceptance of everyone. And I don't think those views have to necessarily be political in their aim to be what they are. Now, I do recognize that the views I will express may ruffle some people, but I don't think that's a political thing. I think that uh, if I say that I believe in the rights of a certain uh, ethnicity or gender, then me, that's me expressing it as a human being. And whoever disagrees with it disagrees with it. I think that it's important, not only important to me, but somewhat of an aim of my laureateship if there is such a thing yeah. to make sure that people get a chance to say what they believe in and not be standing and sitting in the butts and us and sitting in the stands on our butts as Ernest Hemingway would say right so well, th well that's interesting because there might be some um competing priorities there one as yes. you just mentioned is that of uh free expression yes and uh and as you know from writing novels and plays they're not very interesting unless people are in conflict right yes <laughs> and unless they have challenges to overcome mm -hmm. and so but there's also the issue that you'll be representing sacramento yes. which is a, a largely blue city inside inside of a, a blue state on the the blue west coast of the united states mm -hmm. but that when you look east to wide swaths a great number of counties in the united states <laughs> there's room for like alienation or confusion like what who who am i what is my country what's going on you could go over in the hills of california and yeah just outside of sacramento to find that you won't have to go that far oh absolutely the uh, the sacramento comedian keith lowell jensen once said that you can uh, find the, the South five miles outside of any city. Yes. And, uh, and, and just this idea of um, uh, when are you talking to people who are going to be really resonating with the message that you're offering? And when are you going to be talking to audiences uh, where they may feel uh, disconnected from from your message, and you feel that you're you're going to be uh, shifting that message according to what a, whatever political winds you're detecting in the room. I think as, that's going to be a my challenge. Yeah, yeah, I think that's going to be my challenge. I, I do recognize that 
a lot of the people I've worked with uh, as engineers, people might think that a lot of them are liberal. And that's just really not the case. Yeah. They have very different views, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to express them. And, you know, there's a secret hope in there that as they start to express what they're feeling, that they may come to some different conclusions. I, I hate the fact that people use uh, liberal and conservative as if they are curse words, mm -hmm. as if you couldn't possibly think the way someone else does. In truth, we all have some liberal in us and some conservatives in it. I do believe that as poet laureate, it will be my job to get everyone speaking, to get everyone interested in poetry and get as many people as possible recognizing that there may be something that they have to say that not only someone wants to hear, but someone may, one must to, may want to speak to them about. And it may not always be a calm conversation, but I don't think that's my problem. <laughs> my yeah. problem is making sure people are saying it, especially through poetry, but not just through poetry. I really want to get poetry more into other genres, to purports to be speaking more and working with musicians, with artists, with dancers, with every other part of other art form. I'm leaning heavily towards that, and I'm looking forward to having other poets in this community help with that vision. It could be argued that poets are experts at empathy and that empathy is something that we've had too little of across the political spectrum, especially over this this last year of uh, political conversations and uh, debates, many of which increasingly take place in social media and in the, the comment section of newspapers <laughs> where where people just uh, learn or forgotten all the lessons they learned about um, decorum you and, sure they learned and kindness well you, you all these people had parents i mean one would hope <laughs> <laughs> they the same parents who were hooked on the, hooked on the uh, social media before them yes right I, I think one of the dangers of social media if we're going to get into that is that it's so easy to have an opinion that, that you haven't even bothered to vet uh 20 years ago if you wanted to ha have your opinion listened to by ten thousand people there had to be 20 people listening at first who thought it was something worth saying, and then 100 people, and then 1,000. By the time, you at least had to have some proof to what you said had any degree of facts. And now that's just not the case. And I think it makes it dangerous because so many kids can go out and have an opinion and have a thousand other kids who hadn't thought about it either, hadn't gotten any facts, say, yes, you are right. You know, it must be right because it makes sense to me, even though I haven't experienced anything outside of this bedroom. Right. Well, uh, you and I certainly lived in an age where uh, getting published was a, a goal that uh, seemed far off and difficult. Yes. And, and part of what I'm hearing from you right now is that uh, perhaps it's too easy for people to get published. <laughs> I didn't be realize because, we started talking about that. Because they're just sharing willy-nilly <laughs> the first thought that comes to, to mind and sharing them sometimes with large audiences. I'm, I'm kind of mixed on that. I do believe there is some uh, something beautiful on um, having a publisher put their self-worth into your book because, you know, they're putting their their reputation and their money on the line to publish your book. Right. But then again, you look at some self-published work out there these days and, you know, some of it's good. You can, to be honest, you can see some of it where it looks like you really could have used an editor yeah. and someone else to look at your work. But I guess it depends on their goals. If they just want to get it out to people, then, yeah. So I don't know. I think... Right now, things are transitioning too much for me to take a firm stance on it one way or the other, but I do still very much believe in publishing. Excellent. Well, you mentioned uh, a beautiful thing before. Let's hear another beautiful thing from you. What poem uh, do you have in front of you next? The Secret Odyssey, since we've been speaking of uh, Langston Hughes. and um, I have some very specific thoughts on how he appeared to the to the McCarthy hearing, but that's not what I'm going to, that's not what this poem is about. Uh, Langston Hughes was gay and he wasn't necessarily even accepted by many African-Americans and yet he was before the McCarthy hearing expected, expected to represent not only himself but the African-American community. The Secret Odyssey. There is fault and blame enough for all. 
Through what prism can an inquisition masquerade as patriotism? There's Caroline's little boy Langston, spotlighted on McCarthy's rack, imprisoned by taboo desires. Ferdinand is a sailor, 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 whose hands, hands, hands pull Langston to see, see, see this merchant son, Jamaican son, communist tongue son, banished from America and the hues, hues, hues he loves of all shades high yellow to blue black. Langston is King Renaissance Negro, long as the deepest color of his sex stays hidden. There's a rhythm to second-class taboos. Long as the high grass never parts, black's gray secrets remain secret, amen. McCarthy drills, sweat pours from every camera at once. But Langston escapes inward, his face stone smooth. McCarthy glares, swallows hard tack, and dismisses him. Hughes' hands color the heavy Senate door and sink in. Next day, he's returned to the Lotus Eaters, their eyes wide shut, open only to the truths they can stomach. Lovely. Tell us again the title of that one. The Secret Odyssey. The Secret Odyssey. To what extent do you feel with a, a poem like that, and you spoke of this before, uh, do you need to gloss certain things? So when you sit, talk about the Lotus Eaters, mm -hmm. you and I have spent um, a good amount of time in uh, college classrooms where we're talking about books that we should have read when we were in high school. <laughs> yes. Um, but, uh, but not everyone has read those books. And so, you know, especially if there's something crucial that, mm -hmm. that could be uh, lost or even, you know, with audiences that don't know about the McCarthy uh, hearings, yes. which is far less remote to us, but uh, certainly something that needs to be explained to, uh, to lots mm -hmm. of audiences when you go into the the classrooms of sacramento do you feel like you're going to have to hand out a glossary sheet you know to all the students so that they can uh, follow along with some of the well, illusions you're making i think with any uh with any poems you choose to read you have to you have to choose your audience the audience at home they can listen to this again or they know about the mccarthy about mccarthy they know what the odyssey is or they don't i would probably not read that in a uh, classroom, I would choose another poem. Right. All right. Good. Well, I, I hope because your poem is uh, your poems are smart. They're often um, w when you cut out all of the uh, extra words. Sometimes they are uh, compact to uh, such an extent that they reward, say, a second or third reading or listening. I hope so. Uh, I, and so I, I, what I'm hoping for you is that you've got enough poems uh, left over where you, you don't you don't have lots of illusions. The language is not too difficult. Mm. And then you can just say, all right, this this one is ready for for you. <laughs> There's always that. It, it, it's fun because you, even when you're putting together the manuscript, you begin to choose where they're going to go. How, if you're going to have some dense poems in some sections and then some poems that are not quite so in another section. And it's fun playing around with it. And often uh, you're eliminating poems based on uh, based on how they sit with the poem behind it. And that's one of the last things you do. In this particular book, uh, many of the poems are on that vein where I'm purposely uh, incorporating a lot of history into them. And uh, sometimes it, it just comes down to down to what I'm trying to leave the, the reader with. Uh, so some of them are not dense. So I'm going to assume that what you're hoping is that I'm going to have one that's not dense right now. He's looking. I'll let people know who are listening at home that he's like searching. Well, you know, the funny thing is I could just reach to the right and do that. But I was thinking I want it to be from this new manuscript because even as a writer, we get tired of reading the same poems over and over again from old manuscripts. But since you want something sure. that's not dense, let's Hear it. Let's hear it. In fact, there many of the poems in uh, in my second collection require no preface whatsoever. One summer, I could hon only hold my children in poems. I thought us cursed, a witch tormenting our name. 
scoliosis rioted along my youngest daughter's spine. I slept for a week beneath gray walls and ceilings, seven sunsets spiraling over the horizon while, in another room, my oldest daughter, her son sliced from her, shuffled gingerly as if over coals and broken glass, from bed to bathroom, holding her belly, both our hearts in such small hands. Shrunken into a corner, my son, he and his guitar strapped to a long-sung tonality, trying to ratchet down a single note for loneliness. In my worst dreams, we are Icarus, winging across a rusted desert. Next scene, they are gut shot. One, two, three black wings flailing against broken air. Composite screams vibrating through my bones. I turn, not looking, and leap, hoping to be Father God's Savior, but I carry two cursed hands that can't possibly hold the explosions blossoming in my chest. In my best dreams, our fingernails actually touch before we all fall. That's beautiful. And certainly when you uh, choose a, a poem like that one, uh, packed as it is with emotional resonance, that would certainly provide an opportunity to connect with a, an audience who are not bringing preconceptions or graduate degrees in English to the table. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and you handy. know, it's interesting choosing to read a poem like that because uh, on one hand, of course, it's extremely personal, mm -hmm. but... Uh, even though it's personal to you, you're sort of removed from that when you're choosing a poem to read before an audience, and it becomes a tool that you're using to connect with the audience, which seems sort of cold. But in the end, you know, when you're reading before people, they made the choice to come out to see you when they could have been doing anything else, and you sort of owe them the chance to connect with them. Right. And it, it might be said that if you have a, a poem like that one, that you may even owe them moments of uh, vulnerability yes, and, and yes. sharing and revelation. And, you know, and, and some people, it could be said, overdo that, you know, where people in the audience are saying, hey, TMI, man. <laughs> Whereas, <laughs> luckily, I don't think I've ever been accused of that. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas uh, other times, you know, uh, a poem may be presented and, and it might, uh, the, the reader, the listener might feel that there was an insufficient opportunity to uh, connect with the, the performer uh, before them. I agree. Yeah. I only have one poem that uh, is actually sexual in nature. I don't think anyone's ever read that poem and realized what I was talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's and not going to be read now, now that you know it's not it's one of your most now. requested. It, it actually, it's, I, I really enjoy the poem, but no one knows what it is. And But now that I've told you what it is, I'm not going to read it. So because then everybody would know exactly what I was talking about. I've written an entire collection of poems mm -hmm. that have only one person as an audience, and they will largely remain that way. <laughs> and so <laughs> um, I've said, you know, I could turn out a book called Kate, I hope you're in the room while I'm reading this. And that, you know, because that would have to be the case if I were going to read Is Kate your ideal those. reader? Well, Kate's my ideal, full stop. Nicely done. But, uh, <laughs> Well, I don't know. Well, Kate is my wife for uh, listeners who are uh, just joining and wondering who was who even uh, chatting this afternoon with uh, Sacramento Poet Laureate Indigo Moore. She is certainly a uh, an early reader, but it depends on uh, the nature of the poem. I'm going to have to ask the, the producer, is he skirting this question? Because yeah. yeah. it sort of sounds like he is. Are you, are you hearing what I'm hearing? <laughs> Okay, that's what I'm thinking, yes. Are, are we allowed to go to the audience? <laughs> this is not phone-a-friend time here. All right, so I th I believe, and and Ted Kuzer sort of backed this up. You know, yeah. Ted Kuzer was, he said that uh, he worked as in, in insurance, and right. he said he wrote, obviously for himself, but the way he knew a poem was finished is when his secretary would read it and, and understood it. I believe that everyone has ideal readers that they think, okay, if this person reads this poem and likes it and gets it, 
you know, then it's it's pretty close to feel it. So what I'm being finished. So is Kate your ideal reader? She isn't because I have a great number of poems mm -hmm. where um, full understanding or getting is not my objective. Yes. Okay. And so, uh, you know, there are there are musical qualities of poems. And I'm sure this is true for years as well. Yes. That uh, that transcend the mere uh, transmission of a message. You yes, know, I, yes. There, there are essays available for me to write if that's my goal. <laughs> and so often I have other goals, mm -hmm. you know, some sort of uh, emotional truth or, or musical overreach that I'm right. trying to communicate with a poem. Well, uh, we are just about out of time. So I want to ask you if you would share one last poem with uh, listeners this afternoon of this particular podcast at uh, Coffee and Poets. And I'll just remind folks that you can listen to past episodes at coffeeandpoets.com. We also meet here live every third Sunday at the Naked Lounge in Sacramento at the corner of 11th and H Street. This entire production made possible by Ensa'a. All right, what's the final poem, Indigo Moore, Poet Laureate of Sacramento, that you're going to share with us today? The final poem is the first poem from my first collection. It's called Back Through the Storm Door. And since I spoke a little of my brother at the beginning, I imagine you can figure out what was happening here. Back through the storm door. I left the South broken, a busted wing and a crooked eye. Still, I wake mornings with the taste of honeysuckle on my tongue. The phone rings, voices weary with traveling, wires weighed down with crows in thick heat. I know it's the South calling me to christen the born or bury the dead. Lord, I'm still addicted to its touch. He doesn't have long. If you're going to come, it better be soon. In bed hours later, my mind still talon to the phone's bad news. Weed, codeine, scotch. I've ingested enough fog and brain ash to black out the moon, but the crucible of the past is relentless, grinding behind eyelids. Memory spark wild along the nerve's telegraph. The lens focuses backward and the mind grays decades. I dream my past, a fragmented place spliced together with rawhide ties and silk thread. It grows claws and jumps the stage, a beast my hands don't know how to tame. There is no balm for the past dull ache. When the blue jay rolls up his song, the whole damn world spins down on me. Falling back through the door, I'm broken again. Indigo Moore, Sacramento has chosen well. Congratulations on your new post as Poet Laureate. Thank and you. Thank you for joining me today on Coffee and Poets. My pleasure.